Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, it's official. The Senate has voted to reject DC's criminal code reforms. The president has said he's going to sign it, which means that this will be the first time in 30 years that Congress has rejected a duly enacted DC law. This is something that's legal under the city's home rule statute, but it feels deeply, deeply humiliating to locals who believe in self-government. I'm here with NBC reporter Mark Seagraves to talk about how we got here and what it means in the fight for statehood. Today is Thursday, March 9th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Mark Seagraves, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michael. Joe Biden last week indicated that he would sign this historic congressional measure overturning the crime bill rewrite that was passed late last year by the D.C. Council. Why is this measure controversial? Well, the criminal code is controversial for, for a number of reasons. And one is messaging. You know, Chairman Mendelson said it the other day to reporters, the D.C. Council lost control of the messaging on this. And those people like you and I who cover politics all the time, this is a, a constant problem for, for, for people. They may be right, but perception is reality and the message got out of control. And the message that became the narrative of this criminal code is that it was soft on crime, that it lowered penalties uh, for a lot of really bad crimes like carjacking, which is so, you know, on top of everybody's mind. I mean, my mind, I drive around D.C. I've born and raised in D.C. I've been to the worst places in D.C. for murders and riots and everything. And it's only been in the past year that I keep my head on a swivel, that I'm constantly myself concerned about carjacking. So everybody's concerned about it. So when the narrative becomes this lowers the penalty for carjacking, people became outraged at this. And Mayor Bowser picked up on that. And that was one of the things that that she pointed to uh, was the lowering of penalties. The reality of that narrative is that it's not really in some cases, lowering the penalties. D.C. law was 100, is 106 years old, this criminal code. Right. And some of the penalties don't have varying degrees for crimes, right? It's like a one-size-fits-all crime. What they did with this is they made first degree, second degree, third degree, uh, which just brings it up to speed, up to par with other states. And while the penalties for, say, carjacking were very high, the penalties that were being implemented by judges were not that high. I think it was 40 years was the high, 15 was the average sentence given, and the criminal code actually goes above that 15, but not up to 40. So that's how they lost control of the message there. There were a couple of other things in it. One, it expanded the Second Look Act, which is current D.C. law that says if you committed a crime, murder, before you're 18 years old and you serve 15 years of your sentence, even if you were sentenced to life. And I spoke to a guy in, in D.C. jail yesterday uh, who's serving life for murder that he committed when he was 18 years old. And he is a candidate for this. Uh, you can get released. Well, the in the, in the cr- criminal code, it would expand that to all ages could get a second look 
at their sentencing. And it also uh, made more misdemeanor crimes eligible for jury trials. So those were the big things, the big line items that really drew concern. But it was this narrative of lowering penalties for violent crimes that caught national attention. So this is a thing we've covered in the podcast before. This was an enormous, enormous bill, and it had been going on and been, been under under works for years. And DC's code, as you say, it's 106 years old. It, it had things about like stickball in the alleys and stuff. Right. It, it was, you know, it had a bunch of stuff that needed to be updated. Bowser, who uh, vetoed it, who opposed it, um, said even she was on board with like 95% of it. What was the argument for the other 5%, the part that appeared to lower some penalties for terrible crimes. What was the argument for that? Right. So those who who supported that, like Charles Allen, who was really the, the council member who headed judiciary, who has really spearheaded this effort, said that, that, look, one, a couple of things. Higher penalties don't necessarily equate to lowering the, the crime in the city, right? I mean, there's studies that, that show that higher penalties aren't a deterrent. When I interviewed this guy who, again, convicted murderer, has been in jail for, for, for 30 years, when I asked him about it, he said, you know, most criminals don't ever think they're going to get caught. You know, they don't think about the penalty before they do something. Now, others would say, look, if we get that guy off the street, it may not deter anyone else, but it's going to keep him off the street. And because what we see are people reoffending over and over and over. People, right. you know, the typical person who is either involved either as a victim or someone who has committed a murder in Washington D.C. has been arrested ten times prior. So their line, the the proponents of adjusting some of these sentences was: listen, the judges never assign the full sentences That's anyway. Right. The mayor's point was. Yeah, but if you reduce the sentences, they will also reduce what they wind up assigning. And it sends a wrong message. She was also concerned about the optics. And so, you know, those were the two fights. And Mayor Bowser used the words, you know, it will make our city less safe, right? And Chairman Mendelssohn, at that time, he called her on. He says, you know what? You say that and you are going to feed the flames on Capitol Hill. You know, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said, you know, you are going to give comfort to the people on Capitol Hill who may want to come after this. And sure enough, just about every Republican and every Democrat, including the president of the United States, quoted Mayor Bowser. When they went against this, they pointed to Mayor Bowser and said, look, if the mayor's against it, then there can't be anything wrong. You know, she's a diehard Democrat, liberal, big city mayor. If she's she's against this, then it's okay for other Democrats to be against it. Although in the D.C. context, she's rather a moderate compared to a lot of members of the council. Compared to the council, you're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, yeah, we have a very liberal council. But so I guess the question is, and maybe you've just answered it, this created this enormous backlash in Congress. If you think about the politics of the country in 2023, if you think about the media environment, particularly on the right with Fox and stuff, this seems like the most predictable backlash in history. Did anyone see it coming? And particularly on the council side, should they have seen it coming and thought about it? They should have seen it coming. Absolutely everyone. And look, guilty right here. I mean, I, 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 I honestly, when this whole thing started churning through, through Congress, I honestly didn't think the Senate would do what the Senate did. And the president, I certainly didn't think Biden would do what Biden did. But, you know, I, I wasn't thinking in that bigger political, national political prism, right? And, you know, what the Republicans are doing, and it's a good political move. They're forcing Democrats to get on the record on an issue that will be front and center in 2024, whether it be congressional races or the presidential race. And they want to put everybody on the record on this. And even... Chairman Mendelssohn said, 
that he didn't want to do anything to hurt national Democrats because they're their best bet at getting statehood. Well, if he didn't want to do that, then why would he create a situation where they were going to be forced to take this vote? And ultimately, about a fifth of the Democrats in the House, including a lot of D.C. statehood supporters, voted to overturn. I don't think when they were crafting this bill that they thought about that. And I think had they really thought about that, they could have done two things. They could have expedited it so that they could have done this, you know, if possible, a year ago or last year sometimes so that it wouldn't have come right at this time, you know, when everybody's thinking about national politics or wait till 2024, right? Until after this election cycle that's coming up. But, you know, they had worked on it for so long. And, you know, quite frankly, Michael, our mayor and our council, they do not get along real well. There's not a lot of getting along and playing well in the sandbox there. And you, you know, no, looking- Of course, but you would think that sort of gaming out the effects in Congress and the effects on the politics of statehood is kind of part of their job, whether they happen to like each other or not. It is. But as you said at the top, you know, this hasn't happened in 30 years. You know, they get threatened with it. The House does all kinds of things, you know, but the Senate was always kind of, you know, the safe stopgap for them. And then the White House being a Democrat, if they even thought about it, I don't think they thought it would get this far. I don't think they really realized how well Republicans would play this card about being soft on crime, you know? And look, this isn't the end of it, right? Because House has already voted on the D.C. law that allows not that would allow non-citizens to vote in local D.C. elections. Right. So this is an immigration vote. Right. Yeah. So if they do the same thing on this, we're going to be right back at this. And then, you know, as you pointed out, D.C.'s got a very liberal council. They pass all kinds of liberal laws that would just be fodder for the Republicans. And again, if they you know, wh- whether they want to overturn the laws or not, you know, just being able to make the Democrats take a stand and then divide the Democrats, right? This is great. Right. Like they're sitting on the other side watching the Democrats fight amongst each other. It's a perfect game plan for Republicans. So let's let's come back to that in a second. But just for as far as this week goes, after Biden announced his intention to sign the bill, D.C. and the person of the council chairman, Phil Mendelson, tried to withdraw the bill. Right. Does that actually even a thing? And what was it the reaction? Now. It did not seem good. <laughs> you know, it's a thing now. Um, as we learned, it's not going to stop the Senate from voting. And Mendelssohn admitted that the Home Rule Act is silent on this. So it doesn't say whether you can or whether you can't do it. No one's ever done it before. You know, it's common in politics. Again, for somebody who's proposed a bill that's gone through committee or even gone through a first vote and sees, look, the numbers aren't there. I'm going to lose this rather than lose this publicly. I'm just going to pull it back for another day, right? Tweak it, maybe do some bargaining behind closed doors and bring it back when I think I have the support. And that's what he was trying to do. As we learned from Senate staff, when the Senate is voting on this, they're not voting on the crime bill. They're voting on the House resolution, right? So even if he pulled it back, right? I've got it. You don't have the ball anymore. I'm taking my ball and go home. Well, it doesn't matter because we're not playing with your ball anymore. The Senate is playing with the House disapproval resolution that they had already passed. So Senate passes it, Biden will sign it. And that crime bill is as dead as a bill can get. I mean, you know, everybody and and the whole affair there added to the kind of Keystone Cops image that's going on. It didn't make the council look strong. I don't know what Mendelssohn really hoped to gain, but it raised a lot of issues and didn't make anybody at the local level look smart.
When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So, obviously, one of the main arguments here, the argument that the mayor who opposed this bill had used, is that whatever you think about this bill, whatever federal politicians think about this bill, D.C. voted for these council members. They passed the bill. It's a matter of uh, rights for Americans to be able to rule their own uh, affairs and see how their tax dollars are being spent. So, based on representation and home rule and fairness and principle, the bill should go through. It's the will of the people. But... That aside, I was struck in my own conversations by how completely unprepared the proponents of this bill appeared to be when it came to defending the bill on the merits. And my sort of theory here, and I'm curious what you think, is that like 20 or 30 years ago when the local media was bigger, when there were a lot more of you, when the uh, audience had a more political variety in it, the proponents of this bill, the authors of this bill in the city, would have spent the last three, four months fending off lots and lots of very aggressive questions from uh, reporters, and they would kind of have been in better shape. They would have been like boxers who had some good training when it came time to defend the bill on its merits before Congress. Yeah. Do you think there's anything to that? Michael, there's so there's so much that you just threw out there that, you know, one, the size of the press corps, right? You know, when I am like one of the two most senior DC Metro Beat reporters, that's a problem, right? I mean, you're I know, like 17 years old, right? right? I mean, I know I'm, I'm a kind of old guy, but you know, <laughs> when you look at the institutional knowledge that has evaporated from the DC press corps just in the past five to 10 years, just in, you know, when I started covering City Hall and Metro, the Metro Beat more than 25 years ago, Washington Post, Washington Post had 15 reporters at least covering my same beat that I was covering by myself, right? And now it's like one or two reporters in the Washington Post. Washington Post. Their metro section, it's transient. Nobody stays there very long. You don't have a lot of institutional knowledge. And I'll just throw out a name right here. I've never missed Mark Plotkin more than I have in the past couple of weeks. For those who don't know, the late Mark Plotkin was a political analyst. And he would be storming the castle right now if he saw what Democrats were doing to D.C. and home rule. So you alluded to some of the other uh, legislation that's going to maybe catch ire in Congress. And we have a situation in the city where the mayor, Muriel Bowser, is a relative moderate, and we've got a very energized progressive bloc in the council. And, you know, sort of to follow up on the question of media, you know, I wonder, are these guys in an echo chamber where they're not, you know, hearing that that there's a, a lot of people who might believe the caricatured negative version of the bill or oppose the bill even without the caricatures? I mean, they know, right? And Chairman Mendelson said to reporters, you know, he was asked this question, <clears throat> and the mayor has cautioned the council publicly, keep the Congress in mind now when you're passing any bills for the foreseeable future. 
Mendelssohn said, you know, he's not going to have a hotline in his office up to the Republican leadership where he's got to ask permission before they do anything. That said, we could see this over and over again, whether it be with the immigration legislation, the non-voting citizen legislation that could be before the Senate, whether we see it on transgender protections or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any, anything that, that, that might come up. Everything is is at risk for D.C. And then you have members of Congress, you know, at least one member of Congress who has multiple times said that they should go after home rule. Right. And I would remind you, the D.C. CFO just projected nearly a half a billion dollar shortfall in projected revenue over the next three years. The last time Congress took away D.C.'s authority and instituted a control board, we had a seven hundred fifty million dollar deficit. Right. It was a fiscal imbalance. And so, you know, it's it's not a stretch to see how Congress could want to come in here and undo home rule completely. So one of the arguments you alluded to is that, listen, if you are for statehood, if that's your top priority, the best way to get it is for Democrats to get control of Congress and to feel warmly about D.C. This bill and this other measure that you've mentioned that would allow uh, non-citizens to vote in local elections is... Uh, I think it's pretty clear not going to help with either of those things. It's going to be used as a cudgel against vulnerable Democrats, and it's going to piss them off because they're now being forced to take a tough vote. Did anybody think about that when they were passing these bills? Apparently not. The district government and and Tom Sherwood, a friend of yours, a friend of mine, a great longtime reporter in Washington, D.C., asked Chairman Mendelson this very question at the press conference the other day. Who does the council have on Capitol Hill, working as their lobbyist, as their go-between, as somebody. And Mendelssohn finally pointed at a staff member. But, you know, there there isn't that, you know, we have Delegate Norton, right? And she does what she can. And she's somewhat the liaison between City Hall and the mayor's office and, and things that are going on on Capitol Hill. But they did not read the tea leaves well on this. Bo Schaff, who is the executive director at DC Vote, the advocacy group that advocates for DC statehood, months and months and months ago, warned me that this exact scenario was going to play out. So he saw it coming in advance, but the council either did and just ignored it because they like to kind of thump their chest at Congress, but this one really blew up on them. So you're a DC native, as am I. We've now had a situation where legislators that we vote for uh, with the taxes that we pay, have passed a bill, we may elect it, maybe we didn't, but that has been uh, overruled, rejected by people who don't live here, by people who don't answer to us. Um, how does that make you feel? You know, I, I got to tell you, the thing that disturbs me the most about it, as a, as a you know, I am D.C. born, uh, D.C. bred, and when I die, I will be D.C. dead. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, as a D.C. resident and taxpayer, both my sons graduated from D.C. public schools, you know, what upsets me more because I'm not surprised at what Congress did. What upsets me more is how many D.C. residents are happy about this. You know, how many people who are actually involved and not just casual people, A.N.C. commissioners, you know, advocates, people who are genuinely active in in wanting to make D.C. a better place. Like, you know, they're well-intended people, but they are they are happy you know, Mayor Bowser had a walkthrough in Adams Morgan the other day, and this lovely elderly woman spoke out at her and said, I've been a victim of crime. There's too much crime. God bless you for vetoing. I'm so glad Congress stopped. 
this stupid crime. You know, this is what this woman was saying. And so, you know, when I see so many D.C. residents happy that Congress did this, you know, my thought is you're like, OK, you're happy now. But, you know, like it's the old adage, you know, first they came for so and so and I did nothing, you know, and then they came for me. Right. And so that's what really troubles me the worst. And I, again, I'll talk, I'll bring up Mark Plotkin again, because I, I, he's been front of my mind through all of this so much. Plotkin was scared to death that they would put D.C. statehood to a vote on a ballot in D.C. because his fear was there, there were enough D.C. residents who would be against it. And so, you know, that's what I see <clears throat> kind of playing out here is like, there's a lot of D.C. residents who just don't know what a slippery slope this is if Congress starts really exercising their authority. And it is their authority. You know, there's no gray area here. There's no doubt that the Congress and the president absolutely have this authority because we're not a state. Home rule gives them that authority. And, you know, we could see a lot more of this uh, down the road. Mark Seagrace, it's such a pleasure having you on. Please come back soon. Mike, any, anytime. It's great talking to you. Thanks very much. And now for some quick news, here's audio producer Julia Karen. A federal grand jury has charged a D.C. police sergeant with second-degree murder for shooting and killing 27-year-old Antoine Gilmore in 2021. The case is really controversial because Sergeant Envis Jevrick was on duty at the time and Gilmore did have a loaded gun on him. But when the officers approached him, he was asleep in his car and Jevrick shot at him when he woke up and drove away. Jevrick is also charged with violating Gilmore's civil rights. Meanwhile, union kitchens workers are suing their employer over alleged wage theft. The union that represents the workers says Union Kitchen withheld tips from their paychecks and they're seeking to collect the unpaid wages and triple, triple that amount in damages, court costs, and other related fees. Union Kitchen has faced several lawsuits from employees over the last year, including one related to union busting. And in some good food news, Michelin added eight new DC restaurants to their guide. Woohoo! They haven't revealed whether the restaurants will receive stars or bib gourmands, but I'm pretty psyched about this regardless. The new spots span from casual taco joint La Tejana to the upscale seafood newcomer Bar Sparrow. The DMV currently has 24 Michelin-starred restaurants. And for today's DC tip of the day. It's from Mark Seagraves. He recommends checking out the view from the clock tower in the old post office building, which, if you listened to yesterday's episode, and you did, right? You should now be calling it the Nancy Hank Center. It's open, it's free, it's the second highest view of DC, and it's normally empty, so you get it all to yourself. If you go, let us know. You can leave us a voicemail at 202-642-2654. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. This story is a big deal. Please share it with your neighbors. We will be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. 